0: Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. Today, we're continuing the topic we started last week with our episode on getting unstuck by focusing this week on some of the common views, beliefs, and patterns of thought people have that tend to hold them back. These are often referred to as limiting beliefs, And today we're going to be exploring some of the big categories of limiting beliefs and what we can do to push back on those problematic beliefs and build more supportive ones. To help us do that, I'm joined, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So, Dad, how are you doing today? I'm good.
1: And somehow I just started thinking of the image of Gulliver from Gulliver's Travels, (laughs) where in terms of what limited Gulliver, you know, you may know the story, he falls asleep in the land of these tiny, tiny people, and he wakes up And he's been tied to the ground by thousands of little threads. Each thread individually is too weak to hold him in place, but all of them together really limit him. And I think about a lot of the limiting beliefs as sort of, some of them are like chain cables really, really hold us in place. But a lot of them are these small little niggling self-doubts or reasons or assumptions or expectations that murmur in the back of the mind that constrain us like a web or net made of thousands of little threads.
0: I did not see a Gulliver's Travels reference coming in the beginning of the episode, so that was great. That took me by surprise. I think it's actually a great analogy. Way to kind of come up with that one on your feet there, Dad. Um, we kind of create a little uh, a little summary for all of these episodes, which kind of gives us a roadmap of stuff we're going to talk through, and that was not in there. Uh, so I definitely didn't see it coming, but I enjoyed it really anyways. So... (laughs) To kind of keep the hits rolling here, before we get into today's episode, I do want to give people a quick reminder that today's topic is based on some of the material that Rick's actually going to be teaching during a two-day online workshop dedicated to changing your mind on August 28th and 29th. If you're interested in doing a deeper dive into this material and learning a lot more about it, besides, you will really love the workshop. Rick's been putting a lot of work into it. I've included a link to it in the information for today's podcast. Uh, if you can't make the 28th or 29th, don't worry about it. Recordings will be available at later dates. And if you enter the code BEINGWELL25 at checkout, you'll receive 25% off the purchase price for the weekend event as a special offer to our podcast listeners. So, All that said, last week we talked about some of the big kinds of views people can hold about themselves and the world. And particularly, we started talking about some of the ways where those views can hold us back. So for the body of today's episode, we're going to go through and identify some of the big categories of common limiting beliefs, blocks, or unwise views, kind of however you want to refer to them. We'll talk through them a bit, and then we'll explore what we can do about them. So does that sound good? Well, I'll just jump in. I'm gonna tell you now this really neat little process that I just kind
1: of came up with recently, so I'm happy about it. And it summarizes (laughs) a whole lot of psychology about how to change your mind. Hmm. And the acronym is PASS, P-A-S-S, in which we pass beyond old ways of thinking about things that are not good for us or other people. So the quick summary is, and it's an easy way to remember it, P stands for pause. So, as soon as you start to recognize that you're getting bothered by something, you're getting reactivated, or maybe you're just feeling held back, you're feeling muzzled or constrained, or you're starting to feel kind of spacey or sleepy or numb, you know, something's cooking. Pause. Find your footing. Get on your own side. Try to understand what's upsetting you. Get a sense of it. Just pause for a moment. It can only be a breath, but you're pausing. Second, appreciate what else is actually okay. In other words, very often we engage a limiting belief because we're feeling challenged or stressed or something terrible has happened. Okay, whatever is actually true about that, what else can you appreciate that's working, that's on your side? For example, you're still breathing. Appreciate that your body is still here. Appreciate that you have resources in your life. You have opportunities, you have people who are on your side, you have capabilities, you have innate talents, Um, just appreciate. It's really helpful. You know, you kind of track, oh, okay, I'm I'm okay here, I'm okay here. And then third, shift your view. That's where Mm -hmm. you get into the meat of it, where you start usually by understanding your reactions, what's going on in my mind, why do I think this way? Second, you get more objective about it. You realize, I don't really need to keep thinking that way. There are a lot of good reasons why I don't have to keep thinking that way. And then you basically step into, in your mind, a new way of being about it. You actually make the shift. You start to agree with the other way of thinking about things. So that's the shift your view part. And then fourth, Now that you've shifted your view, step into it. Really step into that way of being. Imagine what it would feel like, or even start acting that way. Focus on what's working about this new way of being, what feels good about it, how it maybe benefits others, not just yourself. And in that way, you pass beyond those old problematic ways of thinking about things. Pause, appreciate, shift, step into the new way of being. And I can give you a personal example. That was one of the more striking views I ever shifted in myself. Growing up, I was really young going through school. My dad was a cowboy, actually, but not athletic. So we didn't do sports with each other. And I had this sense as a kid in school, as younger by about two years than most other kids and kind of shy and dorky, that I was really a wimp. I was scared a lot going through school. And ugh. I felt like a loser, felt like a wimp. And that carried through college and even into some years after college. Then one day I kind of began to realize that no, I had been a nerd, but not a wimp. (laughs) (laughs) I was president of the dork club, (laughs) but actually I'd stood up for myself. I'd gotten into some fights Mm, and I'd mm -hmm. held my own and I'm not advocating violence here, but you know, I was two years younger than him and he was about 30 pounds heavier than me. And I stood up for myself. I wasn't a wimp. I was a nerd, not a wimp. And so there I could pause to step back from the thoughts about myself, the self-concept that I was this kind of humiliated, uh, wimpy guy, weakling. And then I could actually appreciate many of the ways that I was actually strong and determined and an active coper in different ways. And then I could, after that A for appreciate, I could start to shift the view. I could start gathering evidence in favor of the view of myself as a nerd but not a wimp. And then fourth, which I really did, boy, oh boy, oh boy, I stepped into that new way of being. I really Mm -hmm. tried to help it Mm -hmm. land inside me and to feel what it would be like to regard myself in the present as a nerd but not a wimp Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: going into the future you know, definitely not a wimp. And even if I could reframe and kind of reimagine the history and reinterpret the history of my life through the framework of I had been nerdy and dorky along the way, but a quietly stubborn and determined and respectable kind of kid, not some Mm. sort of weakling, cowardly wimp of a boy. And that really made a big difference for me.
0: Yeah, I think it's a lovely example. It's a great story. And in that story is a certain kind, a certain category of Uh. limiting belief or kind of wrong view about yourself there. And that's um, one that relates to your identity or to self-identity, which is a big category of belief that a lot of people hold. Uh, Some of the common phrases that you'll hear that kind of indicate the sort of limiting belief are things like, I'm a fill-in-the-blank kind of person, so I Mm. can't do that. Maybe to use your example, there was some narrative, some quiet voice in the mind that was saying, well, I'm a wimp, so I can't stand up for myself in a certain kind of way. To give you kind of my example of that, I've shared a lot on the podcast about having an increasing understanding of myself or a lot of self-concept, however you kind of want to say it as being a bit of an anxious person. Hmm. I'll say that a lot. I'll say like, "Oh, I have a little bit of an anxious temperament." So, dot dot dot. And you know, once we to use your process, we can I can kind of take a look at it. You know, I can I can look at some of the appreciative elements of it, and I've definitely tried to do that. And look at the ways in which my carefulness has supported me in a lot of different positive ways of being. But also I've tried to be a little careful recently about referring to myself as an anxious person. And I've tried to kind of move out of that worldview about my own nature and replace it with other words that are maybe a little bit more positive, maybe thinking of myself as a careful person or a cautious person or whatever, or really asking myself, am I actually an anxious person? Am I really worried about a lot of different stuff? And what I often find when I evaluate that belief is that most of the time, I'm actually not anxious at all. And there's actually a pretty refined category of things that I actually feel anxiety about. And it's really helped me kind of reframe that aspect of my self-identity. Like, am I an anxious person or am I somebody who's cautious about a certain category of thing? And just bounding things in that way has been really personally useful.
1: Mm, That's really... Useful, really good example, and i I of course love you and feel for you and recognize <laughs> you know some of these ones you're talking about, yeah, definitely. and it reminds me of kind of two key points here. The first is that I kind of think that our self concept is usually about six months out of date, oh, at least yeah, for sure, <laughs> yeah, especially if we're a person who has any kind of you know upward trend yeah. of healing, growth, yep. development, awakening, and so on. Totally true. Six months out of date. So it's kind of funny. This is a great point. Yeah, you could actually put in a bit of a correction factor and you can just kind of recognize that a lot of our, your thoughts about yourself are guilty until proven innocent. In other words, the burden of proof is on them to prove that they're actually still valid, these self-concepts, mm-hmm. these ways of thinking yourself. And it it actually shifts things and it starts to orient you more toward opportunity and possibility away from the limits, the constraints of those old ways of thinking about yourself. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is with regard to you, and I think for many, many people, you can really think about yourself as someone who's involved with, I'm going to say it in kind of a fancy way, prevention in the service of promotion. Mm, mm -hmm. These are two major motivational categories identified by Tori Higgins, a really great psychologist. And he talked about, it's actually better to move away from avoiding and approaching as a major structure, and to think more in terms of preventing and promoting. Both are important, but people tend to be a little biased toward one or the other. And I think you and I are actually quite similar in that we are careful, we're wary, we want to know where the hazards are, to prevent them in the service of having some really cool fun. Whether it's in wilderness, in my case, whether it's in your case, doing serious competitive poker or serious competitive dancing, that are both pretty risky uh, and also pretty cool. Uh, So anyway, so I think that's just a different way of talking about it, but it's actually a really useful way to understand that, you know, to use a bit of a uh, saying from climbing, there are old climbers and there are bold climbers, Mm. but there are very few old, bold climbers. And I'm an old climber who has been careful to regulate my boldness so I can live to be an old climber.
0: Yeah, that's, I mean, again, really great way to put it. And it's just what you're doing there is an example of very accurate, very thoughtful, very considered, very based in the psychological science, you know, (laughs) however you want to kind of talk about it, (laughs) reframing, essentially. You're saying, oh, it's not that you're anxious Anxious, necessarily. I'm not being avoidant. It's that you are pursuing a strategy that allows right. you to get some positive things about it out of life that you want to. And also that viewpoint has the benefit of being like way more accurate because you're totally right on. You're representing the world more accurately when you move into that more comprehensive, more positive framework, as opposed to the very narrow, limited statement of I am an anxious person.
1: That's great. Really great. I'll tell you one thing that I think is a really important category of limiting belief. It's actually twofold. There's this term from biology, a rate-limiting factor uh, for growth. For for example, in the desert, water is a rate-limiting factor. It limits the rate of positive development. In a rainforest down on the ground, access to sunlight is a rate-limiting factor because it limits your growth. Well, Beliefs that are rate-limiting factors tend to have the broadest, most powerful impact. So rate-limiting factors that have to do with, A, learning, that limit learning, are very consequential because it's incredibly important for us to keep learning in this life. Second, thoughts and beliefs that limit our capacity to have good process, in everyday activities, including around solving problems, are also really, really important to address. So I wanna give an example of each very briefly. One limiting belief that flattens our learning curve, it flattens the degree to which we can actually internalize beneficial experiences to grow positive traits inside, like self-worth or self-compassion or resilience. A belief there would be, I don't deserve to take in the good because I'm a bad person. I'm stained. I'm spoiled. I'm damaged goods. I did bad. I am bad. It's not for me. I'm not allowed to take into myself. Well, that would really limit you. And it's important to appreciate that that belief is totally wrong. Whatever's been done in the past, you can do the best you can for it. And you can grow and learn from here, including how not to do that again. And almost always when we feel somehow like we don't deserve to grow, someone's been lying to us, often ourselves. And we've often internalized the mistreatment that others have done to us, including molestation and abuse that led us to feel somehow stained or dirty or or broken, when in fact it was them, it was them who were bad actually, and should be ashamed of themselves. So that's one big category here. Second one, process, let's say, what gets in the way of a really good process. Here's a different kind of belief, a belief that, eh, I can't seek expertise. Mm, mm-hmm. Getting expertise for your healthcare problem or your financial issue or how to work it out with a weird neighbor or what to do with your kid who's not reading in school. You want to engage good process. That's what's under your control, compassion and good process. That's what you can really focus on. Compassion for yourself and others and helping your process be as good as possible at every turn You know of the play. Well, mm, if mm-hmm. you're afraid of reaching out for expertise, read a book, look at something on YouTube, go talk to a doctor, get a second opinion, talk to a lawyer listen to someone who understands this thing better than you do. If you're somehow, you have the belief that you're not able to do that because maybe you're afraid of feeling dumb or it's uncomfortable for you when you're around people who clearly know more than you do. And you just need to realize it's okay to be around people who know more than you do. That's how you learn more in this life. The smart play is to be around people who are smarter than you about something. Anyway, so those are two good examples having to do with big issues of limiting factors related
0: to learning and growing and also related to good process. Yeah, just to really drive the point home with what you're saying here, because I think that it in some way is kind of a, a summary of the entire you know Rick Hansen body of knowledge, is that you want to be able to learn. Yeah. You know, if you can't learn, you're screwed. Yeah. Sort of period, end yeah. of story. That is like one of the fundamental limiting beliefs is anything that gets in the way of your ability to learn and grow over time. So any phrase ranging from oh, I feel like I know most of the stuff about that already and I really don't have to learn any more about it to I can't learn that for X, Y, and Z reason, or oh, I never understood that sort of thing, so I'm just going to stop trying, whatever else, to like a whole bunch of the cognitive biases that we have, things like confirmation bias, where we just overlook the 99 examples of something that are different from the belief that we've internalized, and we latch on to the one example that confirms our pre-existing view. All of those things are key blocks to learning and therefore key and very, very powerful limiting beliefs. And one of the ways that they show up is around our own view of ourself, kind of like we were talking about mm. earlier. So let's say that we have a belief, a limiting belief, where other people just don't love us very much or just don't like us very much. You know, we're just not very likable. Like you were saying, there's a mm. self-worth issue there that a person might be going through. You might have, as you move through your life, you know, actually some reasonably good friends and reasonably supportive Mm. partners, some reasonably nice coworkers, you know, whatever, not perfect, but reasonably nice. And you just kind of overlook as you move through the day, all these little examples of other people appreciating you, supporting you, wanting to look out for you, wanting to be kind to you. And you really latch on to the one time that somebody is really critical or really mean or really dismissive to kind of prove to yourself over and over again that people don't really like you very much. And this is one of the ways in which our limiting beliefs are very powerful, because after a long enough period of time, we can kind of get on the side of the limiting belief, right? We could kind of like start to ally with it in a way where it becomes really heavily internalized. And I think that that's why that past process can be really powerful. Because Mm -hmm. these beliefs often are sort of linked to what's sometimes referred to as like system one thinking, if you know Daniel Kahneman, thinking fast and slow, the very automatic, um, very, very quick sort of processing that the brain does just over and over again in order to save a lot of energy. And we need to sort of slow down to get in the way of that thought system and move it toward a more considered, thoughtful, careful, holistic way of viewing things.
1: Totally true. And as you know, I didn't invent the importance of learning. Obviously, a lot of people have paid attention yeah. to that. It's tended to be more in the cognitive sphere. Mm-hmm. Uh, the work of Carol Dweck, for example, about a growth mindset, generally applied in academic or skills-based learning environments. Which is not a critique of her. It just it's part of the general context. It's mm-hmm. fantastic work, uh, and other people in the learn to learn movement in academic environments. What's been important for me at least, both personally and professionally, is to bring that emphasis on learning and especially learning how to learn from positive experiences, Mm -hmm. from beneficial everyday experiences, social emotional learning in particular. So just to kind of emphasize that. Yeah. You're totally right. If I could, uh, I think of another block that is central to limiting learning and also Mm. limiting good process. And it's a block in which a person thinks to themselves, I can't be vulnerable. Mm. I can't show weakness. I can't reveal my soft underbelly. I can't leave my guts on the table. Uh, I can't let them know what I really long for. I can't let them know how hurt I feel. I'm afraid of looking needy. I'm afraid of, of seeming weak, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those I just listed half a dozen different beliefs that are not at all in common. And the problem with that is that really often to learn, we need to acknowledge that we don't understand something or that we're kind of in trouble. And we actually need to be brave enough to be humble enough (laughs) to turn toward other more skillful, wiser, more helpful ways of doing things. And also in our process with other people, very often what's keeping things from working out is that neither party is prepared to be a little vulnerable. It doesn't mean letting the other person off the hook or throwing yourself on the ground and wallowing. It doesn't mean doing inappropriate things in a business environment. That's not the place to put your guts on the table. Uh, but often it would go better if one of the two people who are in a conflict would be a little softer, be a little more authentic, a little less defended, a little less self-justifying, a little more open, a little more willing to take personal responsibility, a little more appropriately sorry, remorseful, and so forth. And learning how to be vulnerable and really come to appreciate that being vulnerable is the power move, actually, often. It's the strong move to go on down or to Mm. be vulnerable, to be open, because it tends to disarm other people. It tends to gather a lot of respect. It tends to help you feel that you're resting in the bliss of blamelessness when you're more vulnerable. And understanding all those things, thinking of the past process here, I'm kind of moving quickly into the first S, shift your view. Understanding these things helps you shift your view and then the fourth S, step into new ways of being, Mm -hmm. you can then start to imagine being with other people in one step more vulnerable ways, a little softer in how you speak, a little more receptive, a little more confessed about what's really going on inside you and imagine it going well and actually do it. And when it does go well, take in the fact that it went well. So Mm -hmm. you step more and more and more into that way of being.
0: Connected to that, vulnerable experiences that people often expose themselves to or kind of categories of experiences that can be vulnerable in different ways for different kinds of people tend to get to a lot of blocks that are related to gender socialization.
1: Oh boy, that's so true.
0: Totally. Where men say, I can't do this kind of thing because I'm a man, a male-bodied person. And women say, I can't do this kind of thing because I identify as a woman or I am a female embodied person. And a lot of it has to do with vulnerability, particularly for men because men are often socialized to toward not being vulnerable, while women mm. are often socialized and again these are broad generalizations with a lot of cultural differences, they're often socialized toward not expressing power, particularly powerful emotions, anger, frustration, fierceness, things like that. Yeah. And so a lot of the time it can be an extremely vulnerable experience for a someone who's been socialized as a man to express a lot of sadness and a lot of emotional openness and vulnerability. And it could be a very vulnerable experience for somebody who's been socialized as a woman to express a lot of fierceness and strength. Like you really mm. feel like you're going out on a limb when you express mm. those different kinds of emotions and getting into kind of some practicality on what a person can do. What's certainly been helpful for me is taking a look at where those systems come from and whether or not I want to be complicit in them. We take so much from our childhood and the systems of interaction that we were exposed to when we were young and the ways in which kids behaved with each other on the playground, like the whole thing. We've done probably a dozen episodes or more on that uh, that are in, in various places in the back catalog or at least have touched on those topics. So it's a huge part of the whole thing. And for me, I was fortunate enough in my own life to be in a situation where my socialization as a guy was soft in general. Like you were, Mm. of course, my dad was a psychologist, you know, you were somebody who was representing being like a fairly emotionally vulnerable man. We had a lot of emotionally vulnerable conversations around the dinner table. But even so, I certainly internalized plenty of that. I was very uncomfortable being emotionally vulnerable in front of friends for a very long time. Did not like crying in front of friends, did not want to expose that kind of softer underbelly. And I kind of got to a point where, when I was really taking a look at the systems that I had internalized around gender, where I just sort of went, geez, is this like, is this a system that I want to be complicit with? Like, is this a system where where I want to sign up for it in the ways in which I'm behaving in the world? And I ultimately just landed on no. <laughs> and That was like a very sort of powerful internal moment that helped me inside of your system really start to shift my view and kind of step into that different way of being because I didn't want to be on the same team as those kinds of viewpoints. I want to add the
1: point that given that women, to generalize, are typically socialized more toward being vulnerable. I think often for a woman in a certain situation, what's actually helpful is to stop being so darn vulnerable. Oh, for sure. And I don't mean that as a critique. I mean, it really more as a statement that, hey, uh, maybe they should be some vulnerable. And maybe they need to really <laughs> yeah. face some things in themselves yeah. and clean up their freaking act finally. Yeah, that and there's other a place for that, sure. Totally. Yeah, and uh, to kind of claim—I guess Kristen Neff talks about—you know—fierce yeah. compassion, fierce yep. self-compassion. Right on. So, so that part. I want to add another thing that I've heard from many women, and again, I'm a guy. I'm generalizing, many exceptions that said, where given the socialization, their beliefs that they're they're not allowed to take for themselves.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and they're definitely not allowed to take for themselves first. It's after they've given everything to their kids, and then maybe after that, given everything to their partner and perhaps other people, and then finally, they can take for themselves. And that's a belief that really harms a lot of women and over the long haul can actually undermine relationships as well. So there can be two good reasons when you're shifting your view here in the past process, there are two kinds of good reasons to realize that it's first good for yourself to take in the good for yourself more Mm. because you deserve it, you have a right to it, just like any other person. Second, put your own oxygen mask on first. It's good for others for you to take in the good for yourself because then that will be in the service of them because you'll build up your own interior resources and have more to give others along the way. Those are two good reasons for realizing that it's actually okay to take more for yourself.
0: Mm. Is there another category of blocks, Dad, that you've really seen in people that you think is like particularly important for us to take a little bit of time talking about here?
1: Well, a huge block and one that you know well is uh, related to beliefs that enable us to avoid risking the dreaded experience. Mm-hmm. We often have all kinds of thoughts whose function is to keep at bay certain experiences. And the beliefs may seem to make sense, but the real question is not whether they make sense. It's what function do they serve? Yeah. So for example, for a long time, I had this belief that I had to make sure that anything I put out into the world was essentially perfect. It was beyond reproach. It was unimpeachable. No fault could be found. Because in my family, if I came home and I only got 99 out of 100 questions right, my mom would ask me, why didn't you get the 100th one right too? So that's kind of in the back of my mind. The problem with that though, is that that belief, the cost of it—is that it really slowed down my output and led me to missing some real opportunities. What I had to realize over time was the function of that belief is to prevent the dreaded experience of feeling bad about myself if hypothetically someone would actually criticize something I did or some piece I Mm -hmm. wrote. Mm -hmm. And so the limiting belief served that function of, avoiding a particular dreaded experience of being criticized, which would pull up a lot of old pain from my childhood of being criticized. And what I had to realize over time was first, I could be globally criticized in effect for not having much output (laughs) in effect. And second, who cares? We all do imperfect stuff. And I'll give you an example here. I think it's okay to just say who it is. A friend of mine is named Bob and he's a highly successful academic, very, very successful, probably the most successful academic I know personally at the highest Mm -hmm. level. And I asked Bob once what made him so successful because I knew him quite well. We were longtime friends, early rock climbing partners, right? So I was wondering, (laughs) what do you do? And he said, well, Rick, honestly, I think this is a lot of it. In the time it takes another person to write one person, I write three and I send them out. One paper, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, research papers, academic papers. I just send them out there and I don't worry too much. I know that one of them is gonna be dead on arrival. One of them they're gonna think needs a lot of work and one of them they're gonna accept right away. And in the time it takes this other person next to me on the airplane or next to me in the faculty lounge, to perfect their one paper. I've written three papers and I've moved <laughs> on. And maybe then the critique comes in, you know, cause papers take a while to publish and the critique comes in a year after I actually wrote the thing, whatever, I've kept moving. And meanwhile, I've published three other papers. And that really stuck with me cause I was the one guy in the faculty lounge who just was so afraid of criticism that he just took forever to finish something. Uh, and meanwhile, old Bob, man, he was just cranking them out. I tried to really learn from that.
0: One of my favorite teaching stories that is it's not mine, I mean it's it's very well known is just um it's the making pots teaching story huh. where you've got uh-huh. a, a pottery class and the teacher says to half the class, "Okay, your job this semester is to make a perfect pot." and then says to the other half of the class, your job is to make as many pots as possible. And by the end of the semester, the best pots were all made by the side of the class that made as many pots as possible, you know? So just like the act of repetition itself can be the greatest teacher and can really move us into positive action. Yeah, helps us learn, yeah. That's right, and
1: it's a good process. You know, ready, fire, aim. Ready, fire, aim. Iterative process, absolutely. Totally. Yeah.
0: So before we kind of come to the end here, there's at least one more block I want to talk about. And then we might spend a little bit of extra time talking about some big picture ways that we can fight these blocks. Although we've Mm. named a lot of ways to fight these individual blocks already. One that I want to talk about a little bit, it's a big category, but it's blocks related to our assumptions and expectations about the way the world is. Mm. And to focus in on a subset of those, Particularly the way that relationships are, or the way that relationships are supposed to be. Mm. As I was talking about earlier, so much of our learning about the world comes from development. And one of the most important things for a little kid to learn about is the way that relationships work. These are often modeled by the interactions between their primary caregivers, but it's also modeled by their interactions with their teachers or their interactions with their friends on the playground or whatever. And over time, we start to build a model in our head about the way in which a mom is supposed to act with a child or the way in Mm -hmm. which a dad is supposed to act with a child or a teacher is supposed to act with a child. And most of the time, kids take that and they say, oh, this is the, the way it is. This is the right way for it to be because it's the way that's happening to me. They infer out from their own experience and generalize it, to every interaction ever had between a child and an adult. And obviously, that can lead to some problems. It leads to a lot of stuff um, having to do with attachment issues of different kinds. We've talked in the podcast in the past about secure and insecure forms of attachment, and the various consequences that can come from each of these things. But just generally, it gives us a sort of script about the way in which our relationships are supposed to look. And a lot of the time, those scripts are just not very good. They're not very healthy. They're not very useful. They're not as good as they could be. They've got some good elements, maybe, but they've also got some bad elements. Maybe they're mostly pretty good, but that mostly pretty good gets in the way of us seeing the things about them that are actually a little problematic and maybe could be improved. And that whole system of our belief about relationships work this certain kind of way And any other kind of way is therefore wrong can be really problematic and really limiting in the kinds of interactions where we allow ourselves to have with other people.
1: That's really great. Maybe we can make this kind of real. Yeah. And concrete. So for example, a collection of beliefs in this area are about or is about, what do you think you're allowed to ask from other people? What can you ask for? And for many people, there are a whole set of taboos. Like for example, I can't, I'm not allowed to ask for you to do certain things inside your own mind. I'm not allowed to ask that you sustain attention to me when I'm speaking. Mm -hmm. I'm not allowed to ask that you pause before you speak and think about its impact on me given the history between us of you yelling at me or using all kinds of harsh language at me. I'm not allowed to do that. I'm not allowed to ask you, let's say, to start by imagining, please, what my good intentions are as best you can gather them before you start criticizing my behavior. See what I mean? These are examples of different things. Or, you know, I'm not allowed to ask that you find a genuine motivation inside yourself for real conversation for 15, 20 minutes a night with us as partners at some point. Or I'm not allowed to ask that you kind of mobilize and find deliberately even an appropriate erotic interest in me as a life partner. Like, whoa, I'm not allowed to ask for that. For example, Mm -hmm. I'm doing a variety of things here. And I think that's one really useful thing to look inside yourself. What are my beliefs that limit what I feel I can ask for? Second, what are the beliefs that limit what I feel I can say, including what I can say that is confronting of other people? Am I allowed to say things that actually make them uncomfortable? And one way you can surface these beliefs is to imagine the usual way you do things. And then imagine being freer or being more like, let's say another person who's kind of a model for you of how to interact in other freer, more skillful ways. So then second, as I'm saying, imagine operating in this new way and then notice what about it gives you the willies. What about it moves the needle if your cringeometer, your cringeometer, if you imagine saying that, or revealing that, or bringing that tone to bear, or persisting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What is it that you're afraid of here? What do you kind of, you know, what do you dread that you're trying to avoid, risking? And then you can start to realize, wait a minute here, the beliefs inside me are what make me cringe or avoid that particular thing. And if I actually thought to myself that it's actually okay, I'm allowed, I'm allowed for other people to be uncomfortable, if I call them on breaking their agreements with me. If someone is uncomfortable about me addressing whether they are committed to keeping their agreements with me, like they're committed to keeping their agreements with the jaboni down the hall at work, you know, if I'm okay with them being uncomfortable about that, I'm gonna be more able to have some kind of depth and workability in a lot of my important relationships. Mm-hmm. So these are two really good questions. What, what are the beliefs that make you rule out What you're allowed to ask for, and also what are the beliefs
0: that rule out what you're allowed to say? Great. Yeah, no, I think really, really good advice. Two very good categories of things to pay attention to in terms of how they impact our behavior and how uh, holding those beliefs can kind of lower the ceiling on what's possible for us in a relationship with another person. Before we come to the end and wrap up this episode today, I would like to talk just sort of generally, we've named a bunch of specific interventions as we've named Mm -hmm. all of these different beliefs. So I'm sure that people are Mm -hmm. already pretty flush with advice, but kind of big picture, I'd like to talk about some ways that we can attack limiting beliefs or some ways that we can maybe like hold ourselves inside of our mind that leads to the creation of more positive beliefs.
1: Oh, that's great. Wow.
0: Maybe because I'm feeling kind of heartfelt myself and
1: I'm Mm -hmm. allowed to be heartfelt. Yeah, My attention is turning to certain kinds of fundamental beliefs about yourself
0: Mm.
1: that tend to, over time, crowd out thoughts about yourself and the future and the world and other people that are limiting and problematic. And also, these are wise beliefs about yourself that tend to also foster a lot of good, good, good movements in your life. One is to have a belief in your innate natural goodness is to really have a sense of conviction that deep down, you're a fundamentally good person. Sure, you make mistakes, not yet a saint, but you're still a fundamentally good person. And in you, maybe amidst some other tendencies, but definitely in you at the core of your being is a natural inherent wakefulness, and movement toward the good that is expressed a lot as caring and love and a natural insight and wisdom deep down inside you, always there. Even if it's covered over, that's who you really are. That's a really, really useful kind of belief about yourself. A second, I think, really, really broad view that's very helpful is to regard yourself as someone who is never fundamentally defeated. That in the core of your being, you reject the Kobayashi Maru scenario from Star Trek. You, re- you reject the thought that there's never anything you can do. And you stand in the thought or feeling of efficacy that if only inside your mind, you can take action there. Mm-hmm. You can learn a little, you can direct your attention in useful ways, you can become a little more skillful you can try new things you can keep churning you can keep being you know the frog who kept churning the cream to get out of the vat so that's the second thing that i think is really important regarding yourself and and
0: claiming the identity
1: as someone who is a learner and a coper
0: yeah moving into agency i mean it's my it's my favorite siren song on the podcast the importance yeah. of agency and to that sensation of agency, feeling like you can make a meaningful difference in your life. And for me, maybe the most fundamental thing around limiting beliefs is it's just what we were talking about at the very beginning. It's enjoying and appreciating the ways in which we can grow and change over time. Enjoying, if possible, changing your mind about something. For many, many people, and at times this has been very true for me as well, There can be a lot of pain associated with changing your mind about something, uh, particularly if it's something that you've expressed a public viewpoint about. Even if it's just public to like your friends and family and your close friends and family, changing your view on that can be really hard. Um, Sometimes it's referred to as escalating commitment Mm -hmm. in the kind of literature on cognitive biases of different kinds or sunk cost, however you want to think about it. But man, change can be vulnerable and hard. So the more that we can move toward a stance where growth is good, change is good. Just because I said something yesterday does not mean that I need to keep on believing that thought today. That's a very, very powerful stance to operate from.
1: That's great. And an example of that, maybe it's this third kind of heartfelt thing here for me. Mm. It's this feeling of uh, stewardship of your own life. Mm. What I mean by that is this feeling that as, a, as many teachers have put it, that this is, or Mary Oliver, your one wild and precious life. Tell me, what is it you plan to do with it? It's your one life. And there's this paradoxical combination of everything matters and nothing matters. In other words, to treat your life that it's yours, it's your beautiful opportunity on the vast game board of reality, what are you gonna do? What moves will you make? You know, what lessons will you learn? What experiences will you have? What songs will you sing? Who do you wanna to give to? Like, how do you wanna take on and be a kind of caretaker or a protector of this precious, vulnerable, frail being who wears your name tag and help that being have as good a life as possible, learn as much as possible, and give as much as possible. Right? And enjoy as much as possible. That, that's a real beautiful spirit. And the flip of it is that nothing really matters. Mm. It's a big universe, 2 trillion roughly galaxies. Our galaxy, 100 billion stars. Current estimates based on recent you know, s- surveys is that there are probably hundreds of millions of rocky Earth-like planets in our galaxy uh, where water could be a liquid on the surface and thus be hospitable to life. So it's fast out there. You know, we live maybe a hundred years. It's just a blank in the total lifespan of the planet. So much of what we do, you know, those critics don't matter. All those people who rained on your parade, they won't matter. And the takeaway for me from all that is keep on rocking in the free world. Live life, live well meanwhile, uh, because it kind of doesn't matter. Uh, there's this mm. beautiful line from T.S. Eliot, In his poem, Ash Wednesday, I think about a lot, including in its spiritual context, teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still. Teach us to care and not to care. And I think we often care too little and we care too much. Mm. We care too little about other people. We care too little about the precious being who we are. And we care too much about what other people think and what the mob says and what the constraints are. And so, for me, that would be a third, really generative, wise view to hold about yourself.
0: Well, I think that that's a lovely wise view. I'm definitely going to think about it myself personally. Um, I thought it was really beautifully said, Dad, and I also think that Thanks. it's just like a great place to kind of close this episode on. I, I don't think I have much to add after that that could it could match the level of poetry. And you know, I, I just think it's such an important sentiment and a great balancing, like you were saying, of things are both more important and less important than we often hold them to be. And often we put a lot of importance on the things that don't really matter and not enough Mm. importance on the things that really do. And Mm. maybe even noticing that and paying attention to that and paying attention to the messages that we've internalized about what really matters versus what really doesn't is itself a kind of limiting belief that prevents us from getting the most out of this life. Beautiful. Yeah. Really excellent. So- Today, I uh, had the great pleasure of talking to my good father about limiting beliefs. Everyone has thoughts and views about the world. We acquire this knowledge throughout our lives, and it can include our ideas, our beliefs, opinions, assumptions, generalizations, labels, categories, perspectives, meanings, and even models of reality or the way that the world is supposed to work. Acquiring all of these thoughts, all of these different kinds of views, is really normal. But it's also really easy for us to become trapped in beliefs that are attached to them. When these beliefs prevent us from accomplishing something that we want to accomplish or being the way that we want to be out in the world, they become limiting beliefs, things that hold us back from becoming the person that we want to be. During today's episode, we explored some of the many different kinds of big categories of limiting belief we talked about how some of those beliefs appeared in our lives rick gave some personal examples i gave some personal examples and then we gave some ways that people can address the various kinds of common limiting belief as a big overarching framework rick suggested his pass process for dealing with any kind of negative view that we hold about the world including the ones that we hold about ourselves The acronym PASS is PAUSE, APPRECIATE, SHIFT, and STEP. First, we begin by just taking a pause when one of these limiting beliefs appears. The more that we slow down, the more that we can move into a thoughtful way of approaching our lives and our thoughts as opposed to an automatic one. And many of our limiting beliefs are tied to the automatic systems of cognition, the underlying assumptions that we have about reality. And the longer a pause we take, the more that we can really think about what we're thinking about and go, huh, is that something that I actually want to believe? Or is it just a belief that's been kind of fostered upon me over time? We can then take a moment to appreciate the belief, to ally with it, as we talked about during the conversation. What are the functions that the belief serves? What do we like about it? What are the good things that it's allowing us to do? What are some of the benefits that we feel like we're getting out of holding that belief? What are some of the painful experiences that that belief is allowing us to avoid? And as we do that, as we appreciate the belief, all of a sudden the belief becomes something we're doing rather than something we are. And that's a really critical distinction. It's much easier to change a behavior than it is for us to change an aspect of self then we can shift. We can shift how we view the belief. We can create some kind of alternate belief that might be more positive, more useful. Rick gave the personal example of changing his framing on himself from thinking of himself as being a wimp to thinking of himself more as being a nerd. Somebody who's kind of into different sort of nerdy stuff, but is also really capable of standing up for himself in positive ways. And then increasingly over time, we can step into that new way of being and that new way of looking at the world. For most of the episode, we talked about a variety of common limiting beliefs, and I won't repeat them all here. That would take a little while, and you can just scan back through the episode and check out the timestamps. But there are two that I want to really highlight. The first is any limiting belief that takes us out of good process or prevents us from learning in important ways. And the second is any form of belief about our self-identity or self-concept. What kind of a person do you think you are? And how are some of those kinds, some of those fill-in-the-blanks, holding you back from what you could do out in the world if you just believed something a little bit different about yourself? Then we close the episode by talking about some of the strategies people can use to attack their limiting beliefs. One of the ones that I think is really important is just enjoying changing your mind, becoming a little bit less allied to the person you were a week or a month or many years ago so that you can be more allied to the person that you are a week, a month, or a year from now. I hope you enjoyed today's episode on limiting beliefs. If you did, you'll probably really like the workshop that Rick is going to be teaching. August 28th and August 29th. It's online. It's the Change Your Mind workshop where he will be going into all of this material in much more detail, and there will be a lot else besides. I've included a link to the workshop in the description of today's podcast. Again, it's the 28th and 29th, but if you can't make those days, perfectly okay. The whole thing will be recorded, and recordings will be available for people who purchase the workshop. Also, if you would like a bit of a discount for our podcast listeners, you can enter the code BEINGWELL25 at checkout for 25% off the purchase price. If you'd like to support us in other ways, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to the podcast through the platform of your choice, maybe leave a rating and a review, and maybe even tell a friend about it. It really does help us out. It's one of the best ways we have to reach new people. So until next time, thanks for listening.